Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today we're going to be talking about conflict. Conflict, tension, disagreement, they're common events among colleagues. And it's not that people are wrong in some way, but that it's true that we all have competing and legitimate, I might add, points of view, different experiences, and contradictory criteria, quite honestly, for success. People often ask me how to manage in a matrix, and I'm going to tell you, in my view, the fundamental principle of a matrix is that it's set up to induce conversations about conflict and tension. And the way you get through a matrix is learning to deal with conflict well. So what I want to talk about today is when is a fight a good fight? And what do you do when we, you know, what do you lose when you don't fight? And how can you fight without creating an unhealthy atmosphere? So that's the subject for today. Now, my guest today is Leanne Davey. Leanne is a New York Times bestselling author, and her first book is You First, Inspire Your Team to Grow Up, Get Along, and Get Stuff Done. I love that title. She's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and is also an expert for Quartz Magazine. She's co-founder of Three Co's, and she advises on business strategy and executive team effectiveness, and she's worked with companies like Amazon, Walmart, Aviva, TD Bank, um, 3M, and Sony PlayStation. What a lovely collection. I should also say that she has a PhD in organizational psychology and is an evaluator for the American Psychological Association's Healthy Workplace Awards. So that gives her some broad context here for talking about this. Most importantly, the brand new book is called The Good Fight. Use productive conflict to get your team and your organization back on track. So, Leanne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be here, Wanda. We're thrilled to have you. I think this is such an important topic. Um, I know because I deal with it every day that I talk to anybody in corporations. It's about some personality or some scenario or some conflict and tension, and people are just struggling to figure out how to do it. So talking about how to have a good fight I think is important. Now, I want to be careful. Before we get started, let me do a word of explanation. I'm going to use the word conflict. Leanne is going to use the word fight. We do not literally mean that you've gotten to the point where you cannot get along, you hate each other, you distrust each other, the relationship is broken, and there's a fist fight about to occur. Rather, we're talking about people who disagree. It matters to both people, so there's probably a good bit of emotion, hopefully a little bit under control, because it does matter. And you might be more comfortable with words like tension or debate, but we're going to use the more intense words conflict and fight. So, Leanne, I have to ask the first one. I coach a ton of people who are afraid of conflict. Why is that in your experience? So, it's interesting. I was I was giving a speech on Wednesday, and I asked them to, to do this fun exercise where they write their most secret reason why they're afraid of conflict on a piece of paper, and then they throw it across the room, and, and they pick up one another's pieces of paper and read them. So, I have a hundred answers to that question <laughs> that are just from this week. And um, the most common answers would be, of course, fear of reprisal. 
so I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to get fired, I'm going to not be promoted. Um, there are people who are very afraid of hurting other people, so I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, I don't want to upset them. Uh, there are people who I would say are not afraid of conflict, but they've given up on conflict. And, and what they're telling us is, uh, you know, I've tried it and it didn't work, so it's not worth it. It takes too much energy. So there's a variety of reasons why. Um, many of them start, A, we're biologically wired to get along with people who are in our group. Uh, and B, we're socialized by people like Grandma who says, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And so uh, we're socialized right from the very beginning not to like conflict, and, and then people are telling us that, uh, that that sticks with them right through their careers. Yeah. Do you find that people that grow up, I'm asking you as a psychologist now, that people that grow up in families where conflict was sort of a day-to-day practice, not that it was an unhealthy environment, but that they didn't mind having the fight, that they're better in the workplace than those whose families avoided conflict. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, absolutely, because you've come to understand that that's normal. Um, In my family, the version of conflict was often teasing, and teasing in my family meant you were in, you were cool, you were accepted. If my dad teased you, gave you a horrible, embarrassing nickname, that meant you were good. Um, and so for me, I grew up um, learning that that was a positive thing, that that was okay. Other people grow up, uh, we say, where they're the last vestiges of the Victorian era, <laughs> where you know nothing could ever be said at the dinner table that was untoward or, uh, or, or too uh, blunt or direct. And, and those people uh, have, have learned that you show respect by being very diplomatic uh, so it's very true that how you were raised still has a big impact as you uh, enter the workforce on what you believe is respectful, what you believe is healthy, and, and therefore a big impact on, on whether or not you have conflict. Okay. All right, so you know, you've been arguing, that makes a lot of sense to me, and it certainly rings true with my experience with people. I'm not sure what it says about my family, but we'll leave that <laughs> one for another day. Um, you call your book The Good Fight. All right. So why is conflict a good thing? Conflict is a good thing because if you're working, well, broadly, because every relationship uh, that involves two people is going to have different motives and, and, and different tensions. So it's better to work through them than be uh, held hostage by them. So generally, but if you take the organization specifically, uh, organizations require conflict. And that means we have to make tough calls around how to use scarce resources. We need to make trade-offs. We need to prioritize. Uh, we need to make hard people decisions. Which person gets the promotion and who doesn't? How do we divide workload, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so there are just a, an endless stream of, of conflicts that we need to deal with to work in an organization. And if we avoid them, we build up what I call conflict debt which is just like having credit card debt. Um, you know, all these things that we really should be paying off and we just can't face it. And so we rack up this conflict debt and, and leave ourselves paying interest on it. And, and so if you fail to prioritize, there's a big debt there. We haven't made the call around what's most important. The interest we pay is overwork and burnout and stress uh, and, and diluting our resources. So there's uh, there are very significant consequences. So some of the ones that are most common in organizations would be we fail to prioritize and therefore we deal with burnout. Um, we don't like conflict, so we stay in silos where it's safe and we don't cross and, and talk to other departments. And the interest we pay on that is a lack of innovation and a lack of 
creativity and, and lack of growth as a company. And then the third one that's also very common is when we don't like conflict, we don't want to get feedback. We don't want to have people expose the risks or assumptions in our plans. And the interest we pay on that, of course, is that we, we're left vulnerable. We make mistakes. We put things out into the market that are not, uh, not good. And then we, we sometimes pay very significantly. Um, you know, certainly in the media right now with the, uh, the Boeing 737 MAX 8, there's now interesting scrutiny coming on. Did we really open ourselves up to having conflict about whether we could launch a whole new system without having uh, pilot training, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I suspect we're going to learn there wasn't very much conflict about that. So there can be very, very significant consequences to stifling, uh, stifling conflict in an organization. The, we should talk about the ways in which conflict gets stifled, but old story, if you go back to the Challenger disaster between um, NASA engineers and Morton Thiokol engineers, there was huge conflict between those two teams, partly because they didn't even, they weren't in the same physical location, but they also had competing interests and competing desires and competing concerns and so on. And you can trace back the way they did not talk to each other as resulting directly in ultimately missing the fact that the O-ring was not going to work. Right. So I'm assuming that that occurs in a lot of companies. Boeing, perhaps, we don't necessarily know that one, but I think if you look back right. at any of the number of drug problems where we should have maybe have seen that one before, or Volkswagen as a more recent one, I think you're going to find some of the mm. same things where people don't have the difficult conversations, we might say. Yeah, absolutely. So we get that downside risk. So there was risk somewhere in our plan. Culturally, um, we weren't allowed to raise it or or we raised it at a certain level, but then um, the leadership stifled it. Um, So there's all the risk issues. But then there's the positive upside too, which is if we're not willing to, you know, have these ideas clash together, maybe we don't innovate and we don't lead the market and we don't... um, we don't prioritize and we don't come up with, you know, what's our big bet that we can really throw all of our resources behind. So there's just so many reasons why organizations suffer when we're not willing to have conflict. Yeah, I can see that one. I have a couple clients at the moment where, and I will keep the names out of this one for obvious reasons, but where there are some inherent conflicts often between one group and another group that have to do with things like resources or the trade-offs, or, you know, exactly as you said at the beginning, you know, who gets promoted or who's not ready for promotion, those those sorts of classic company-wide the decisions. And the conflict is not, that. so in some ways they're not talking about the real issues that are underlying that and the challenges. People in the organization now are interpreting this as all massively political, now, it may be political, but it might also just be that they're not effective at dealing with a conflict that's there. Sort of, what's your view? Yeah, so my guess is that it has become political. Um, it has become, so it's interesting. So many of the things that we experience as trust issues uh, and mistrust across departments are actually alignment issues. Um, so we think it's about the humans, and we think it's about whether we like each other or not or whether we're trustworthy or not. Really what it is is we never got aligned about what's the right call for the business, and, and that's one of those situations that you're talking about. So uh, the vast majority of the time, 
the conflict is among roles. It's among competing um, things that are both important. So I'll give you a really simple example. I was working with a large food manufacturer, and somebody from sales won this huge order of ribs for the long weekend in July. So wonderful, so exciting. We've got this massive order. Well, the head of operations wasn't so excited because for him that meant a very expensive line had to be run because ribs are really expensive to produce. Uh, it meant that his efficiency ratio targets for the month, he was going to miss them for sure. Uh, it meant he was going to have to sell off all the rest of the pig for, <laughs> for a much lower price because so far pigs don't come as just ribs. Um, so, you know, that's not um, one person or another being a jerk. That's the natural tension between sales and operations. Sales tends to want to differentiate the product, do things that are really customized for their clients, uh, you know, those kinds of motives. And operations tends to want to have consistency, standardization to be more efficient. Those tensions suggest that you're a very healthy team. Um, If you're not fighting those things and feeling those tensions, somebody's not pulling hard enough and your company's probably not growing. Um, so understanding and, and a lot of doing this work effectively with your team is starting to label those tensions that are supposed to be there and giving everyone a language to talk about, are we getting them in about the right balance? Okay. All right. That makes sense. You're reminding me, a guest we had a few weeks ago, Adam Kahane, who works with people who ah, yeah. fundamentally hate each other. Is, uh, hate's yeah. a bad word today. Let me rephrase that one. Who fundamentally distrust, do not like, and don't want to talk to each other and think people who are on opposite sides of a political divide like a president of a company or of a country and um, the head of crime group. To name one of his clients is specific. And his statement is, there is no one thing. There is no one common goal. Because everybody has their own experience, their own perspective, and their own set of goals. And you're saying the same thing here. Something I see all the time is that different groups actually have different criteria for success. And those criteria put you in conflict. Yeah, and and so... Uh, you know, Adam, Adam really gets called into that. <laughs> you know, he's, so the he's one's, on the yeah. ones that we all joke about. When we say we're not trying to solve Middle East peace, well, he is. He so is, he, yeah. He's on the really advanced ones. I think in most organizations, we actually do have one goal we can get to if we abstract it up a little bit, right? We, um, you know, we are all trying to add value for the same customer or, you know, those sorts of things. But they go a few levels of abstraction up from what our bonuses are tied to and what our performance objectives say. And that's where organizations do a really poor job because they leave people with literally completely different goals, which are oftentimes, like the sales and operations example, in, in complete conflict with one another. You know, if, if the sales guy's getting the kind of differentiation of product that he wants, the ops guy is losing the efficiency he's being measured on. So, it, you know, I think Adam makes such an important point. We need to think about where we have to come, and why it's hard to be a leader. We need to come, talk about being out of your comfort zone, come to the optimal answer while knowing that there's no right answer. These things are in tension with one another. We're going to make a call that, that in some ways probably um, focuses on one tension or one perspective more than the other in any given situation. We have to pick, depending on the situation, which is the right one. 
But but when you say that, it's really important to remember we're trying to come to an optimal answer for this situation and these particular set of circumstances, but it's not a right answer. There's no answer key. It's not like doing algebra. And that's that's hard. That's and that's why it's uncomfortable for us. That's a really important point, is that we're trying to come to an optimal answer, but there's not a right answer. We're trying to yeah. maximize what we have in front of us at the moment in time, knowing that one side is going to get some emphasis over the other. We hope it balances over time. The um, When I talk about what it takes to get out of the comfort zone, one of the things that I find people moving from an expertise role into more of a spanning role have to do is to learn to make the call when there's not an answer. It's not like we can analytically run the mathematical formula and come out with A is correct. It's that comfort with ambiguity in some ways, if you will. And that's exactly what you're saying. There's no right answer, but we'll make our best shot. I was facilitating strategy for a a telecommunications uh, organization recently, and we were working on the strategy, and there were lots of tensions there. And at the end, one of the executives was very uncomfortable, uh, clearly with the ambiguity, and he just said, well, how do we know this is the right strategy? And, of course, the Mm -hmm. answer is, we don't. (laughs) Right. Never will know. Yeah. Even if it is the right strategy, the environment may change as we're implementing the strategy and mean it doesn't work. Um, And so... Yes, being in conflict and in tension with one another, particularly when there's no right answer, um, leaves lots of room for the conflict to be interpreted as mistrust. Like, see, I told you so, or, you know, that sort of thing, which is really harmful in an organization and in a team. That's important. So to be interpreted. So we're going to have to talk about how do we do this as so that we avoid getting interpreted as mistrust. Before I go to that, though, the hows... Let's talk about, I mean, we've been talking about conflict like it's always a good thing. Is it ever not a good thing? Yeah, there's lots of times when conflict's not a good thing. So um, it, it's the old pick your battles idea. So one time, and if you think of the, um, there's a tool many people have been exposed to over the years called the Thomas Kilman instrument. Mm-hmm. And it looks at scenarios where it's best not to have a conflict. And one is where where the other person, uh, the issue is extremely important to the other person, the position is extremely important to the other person, and much less so to you. And that's a good time to say, you know what, this one doesn't matter that much to me, I'm, I'm not going to fight it out. That's one scenario. Another scenario is uh, when the time pressures or the stresses are very high. Um, it, you know, having conflict takes some time. And there may be situations where you see, say, you know what, we don't even have time to fight this one out well, Let's go with it. Um, we'll figure it out. So in a crisis is one example where, you know, if somebody is just, well, let's make sure we've thought of every perspective. You know what? We just may not have the luxury of that. So there are certainly situations where conflict is not a good thing. And certainly there are situations where uh, it's become emotionally unsafe. Psychological safety is an important idea that the people in the room feel safe. And there are times when uh, the way that the conflict is emerging is going to be hurtful to someone. They're going to feel extremely vulnerable. And, and that's probably a time where not to avoid the conflict, but probably to move it to a different situation, um, to have it in a way that is going to be uh, safer for people, um, more manageable for people. So that's another thing to think about as well. So there's a, a who, what, where, when, and why of conflict, and, and it's not that conflict is always a good thing. There are, there are times 
and situations where it's not right, and and there are certainly uh, moments for certain people where you're going to need to manage it in a different way. So the three criteria, though, would have to be, if I were just sort of listing, is this fight going to be a good fight, or is this fight worth it or not? I would say, is it equally important to me and to the other person, and highly important to both of us? If not, then I might want to look at some of my other strategies like a compromise or a trade-off or a more expedient way of getting to an answer rather than having taking the time to have the fight. Uh, the second one is when, time, when stress time is limited and stress is high, it's very hard to spend the effort you need to actually have a good fight. And then the third one is when the emotional stakes are so high, like there's emotionally unsafe conditions or circumstances and and you want to just be having a little inner dialogue with yourself um saying is this the right issue is this the right time is this the right approach um those kinds of questions are, are really really important um but i think always being aware that it's not a good answer to stifle something that needs to come out so if you answer those questions with it's not the right time or it's not the right approach then you know it's really important that you find a better approach and a better time uh, to come back at it because if you don't, if you build up that conflict debt, there's resentment, uh, trust starts to suffer, productivity starts to go down as as issues get left open and people don't implement. So it, you know as long as it's not number one, if it's number one, this isn't the right issue, then that's fine. You can let it slide. But if it's the other two then find another opportunity in another forum where you can raise the issue constructively and, and get to the other side of it. Otherwise, it's going to be, you're going to be stuck with it for, for who knows how long. The um, U.S. Army, so you talk about this notion of how to find a better time or a better approach. So the U.S. Army, and I suspect other military around the world, but I know U.S. Army, has a process they call an after-action review where the notion is after we've done something, it's going to become standard practice that we stop and say, what went well, what did we learn, what would we do differently? And that becomes just a routine process in the military so that it's sort of that feedback cycle where nobody feels on the spot. So it feels relatively safe. And it strikes me that that could be a good, an alternative way of approaching the conflict that needs to come out, not in the heat of the moment, but afterwards. And what's your view on that kind of a strategy? So it, it it's very useful. What we don't want to do is have it replace the upfront, the proactive, ah. because in that case, the mistakes have to be made, and then you know we'll have it later. The question becomes: What if I'm, you know, go back to the challenger example? Uh, you know, what if a mistake is about to be made? What if a bad decision is about to be made? That wouldn't be a case where, you're like, well, don't worry about it. We'll talk about it in the after-action review. Right. Right. You, so, um, really understanding uh, how do we get conflict ahead of decisions? And right now. Most of the time, conflict falls to behind the decision, which is this is your fault. That's how it gets to be blame. Uh, that's how it gets really, really unpleasant is when we have the conflict after the action as opposed to before the action. So the more that we can be proactive with it, we can uh, mm-hmm. dissent and disagree and bring diverse perspectives uh, before the call is made. The worst time, so if we have the before a call is made and we have that great after action review where is a safe place to talk about what we've learned, those are both great places to have productive conflict. Where we don't want conflict is in the process, in the middle of those two things. 
So if the call has been made and you're constantly trying to reopen the decision, that's a terrible place for conflict because then you're kind of assuring that it's not going to work. Um, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy then. Um, so we want to make sure that we're having our conflict, if we're picking the when, before the call is made so that there's a chance to change the call if we need to. Mm-hmm. After the process is done, so we can learn and grow, um, but not in the middle. Zip it in the middle and do everything in your power to, uh, to make, make your action successful. Okay, fabulous. Now let's go back to something you said. I like that one. I, that's a lovely framing that conflict is good before we're making the decision and it has appropriate places if done well afterwards. Hopefully not because you made a massive mistake. Hopefully we missed that one, but not in the middle, not after we made the call and we're trying to execute. I want to go back yeah, and you were talking. It's not a good spot. Yeah. yeah, it's not a good spot. I get that. That makes a ton of sense. When I go, but we were talking about the three conditions that it would be, you know, you kind of want to do a check for yourself of is this the right time to have a conflict apart from the before or the after we just mentioned. And again, to review those, one is where it's extremely important, more important to the other person than to you. And two is when there's not enough time or the stress is too high to actually do the fight well. And then the third one you said was emotional safety. Now, it's interesting to me, a lot, there's a lot, a lot of conversation about emotional safety and about creating emotional safety. It's a lovely thing to say. It's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. So do you have any words of wisdom about what makes a place more emotionally safe or a moment in time more emotionally safe? Yeah, so there are a few things. So um, it's interesting. People tend to try and make conflict more emotionally safe by making it less direct. So you hear a lot of leaders say, you know, I get the feedback that I'm too direct. And Mm -hmm. I think that's terrible advice. So you actually want to be very direct when you're talking about something. One of the things that can be really upsetting is if you're beating around the bush, if you're using too many words, if you're not making it clear, that makes people nervous. They're going to pick up uh, nervousness from you, and it makes it all very uncomfortable. So you do want to be quite direct, get to the issue. This is what we're talking about. What needs to change is the intensity. So we want to bring the intensity way down. So we, we do a lot of things that raise the intensity. So we'll use language just like you. You said this. <laughs> well, as soon as we're talking in the second person like that, whoo, you feel the finger pointing at you. You feel it coming at you. So um, much easier to bring the intensity down by saying we. This is our challenge. This is our situation we're facing. So that's one way. Um, when we use statements, you know, this is not the right approach. It's much higher intensity than if we ask a question. You know, what's going to be the impact of this approach on our existing customers? So a question is lower intensity. Um, those are the kinds of things you can do. Shifting from talking, using judgment words, which when we get into conflict, we switch to judgment words. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we're rude. You think this is stupid. We, we switch to all these things. Um, and instead, describing behavior, right? Okay, so uh, in this meeting, you uh, spoke over me three times. If we describe behavior, it's it's less, uh, judgmental, and it's more emotionally safe to talk about behavior. The, the one thing that really interferes with a feeling of psychological safety is if you tell someone else on your team what they think. So telling mm-hmm. someone else what they think. You think this is stupid. 
that makes me feel very unsafe. I feel like I no longer have my own sovereignty over my own thoughts. Secondly, if you tell someone how they feel, right, or if you tell them who they are. Well, you know, you're the bean counter, so you're always, of course, you're going to think about it that way. So uh, all of these things that we do, so if we're very indirect, we actually make it less safe. If we are too intense, where we make assertions instead of questions, if we say you instead of we, if we use judgment instead of being um, much more uh, objective about behavior, all of those kinds of things dial up the fear, uh, make it feel like it's coming at at me as a person instead of that there's an issue sitting in the middle of the table and we're all looking at that issue uh, with a little bit of safe emotional distance. So there's, it's interesting because, you know, we tend to get people on this line of, I need to be less direct. No. If anybody's told you that, don't buy it. What you need to be is less hurtful. You need to be less personal. You need to be less intense. All those things are fair. But go right to the issue. Just when you get there, um, be more curious with it. Be more exploratory with it. More people. In, the other thing that makes the emotional safety go down in a, in a meeting is if you're in a meeting and it becomes a conversation between two of you then you feel very singled out. So, you know, the other thing is have, you know, more people engaged in the conversation. As the heat is going up, say, hey, you know, Sally, I'd love to know what you think about this. So there's a whole variety of things we can do to make a conflict much more safe. Those are just a few of the examples. Okay. All right. We'll come back to more of those in just a minute. I think this whole notion about make being direct. So being direct in that I'm going to get to the point and name the point. Is, is a good one because now we know at least what we're talking about and what we mean by that one. But a lot of people use the word direct when they mean somebody's sharp, um, a bit harsh in their statement, and they're tending towards the more judgmental phrasing, the intensity phrasing that raises the tension in the room. And I, those, as you rightly say, are not very helpful. So I guess we have to be very careful to define what we mean by direct. Yeah, absolutely. So right to the point, but just when you go right to the point, um, don't be pointy. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, yeah. I love that one. So, that would be my new bumper sticker, to the point, but not pointy. I love it. That's great. I'm going to tag, steal that line because I love that one. All right. So if I come back and try to summarize this one, and we're going to talk a little bit more about how in the second half, is that conflict is a good thing provided that it's equally important to all parties involved, that you have a little bit of time and the stress isn't too high, and that there's some emotional safety. And emotional safety is driven by how you choose to talk about the issue that's at hand. And I guess the timing, too. It has to be before the decision is made or in a reflection after action has been taken and we're looking back to learn from it. But the ways in which you make this okay are by bringing the intensity down, by turning it into questions that engage people as opposed to making statements, avoiding all the judgment words, describe the behavior instead, and avoid telling the other person who they, what they think, who they, how they feel, or who they are. So again, if you come away from any you statements, you're probably in really pretty good shape. Okay? How's that for a summary? I think it was fantastic. <laughs> That was a lot I got in there. (laughs) You said a lot. 
Okay, so we're going to take a break. With me today is Leanne Davey. Leanne is the best-selling author of a book called You First, Inspire Your Team to Grow Up, Get Along, and Get Stuff Done. I love that title. The brand new book is called The Good Fight. Use productive conflict to get your team and your organization back on track. When we come back, I want to talk a lot more about how. So how do you create a culture as a leader that makes conflict normal and productive. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Leanne Davey, and the book we're talking about is The Good Fight. 
use productive conflict to get your team and your organization back on track. And we've just been talking about why a good fight is a good thing to do, when it's a good thing to do, when it's not a good thing to do. And the most important measure of this one in some ways is if there are tensions, issues that are not getting addressed, it's creating a debt, kind of like a credit card debt, as Leanne says. And that means that it's going to cause consequences somewhere down the line. So better to learn how to deal with it. Now, I should also tell you that if you visit Leanne's website, leannedavey.com slash goodfight, there are all sorts of free tools. And if you order her your book, her book, there are even more free tools that open up for you to help you do this. So I want to turn now from talking about how, why you need to do it and how you could fight as a, what the right approach is as an individual in the organization and talk about a leader. Talk about the way of a leader where you create a culture where conflict is normal. And I kind of have in this mind a leader where we could actually tell each other what we really think. And that means we could give candid feedback and it would be okay. So Leanne, how do we do that? So uh, let me give, I'd like to give your listeners something really practical. So let me give you one piece of the puzzle. It's not the whole thing. But if we go back to our sales and operations example from earlier, where there uh, are and are supposed to be tensions between these roles, um, one of the best things you can do as a leader is to do an exercise where you actually get the team together and you go through role by role and you describe those tensions. So you're going to answer three questions for each role. First, what's the unique value of that role at the table? So what is it that they're paying attention to that no one else is? What is it that they're good at or bringing to the discussions? Um, what's the unique value of that role? That's the first question. The second question is, what stakeholder uh, is that role particularly focused on or are they beholden to? Um, so it might be some people, marketing is often focused on people who aren't yet customers. Sales is focused on people who, you know, are customers. Some people, the finance is focused on the board of directors or on the regulators. So it turns out that there are very different stakeholders that people are paying attention to around the table. So that's the second question. And then the third question is, you know, what's the tension that that role is supposed to put on every conversation? So in our sales and ops example, we said, well, the salespeople putting on that tension around differentiation and the operations people putting it around um, systemization, consistency, that sort of thing. And so if you go around the table and you answer that question for each role, first of all, there's going to be a lot of light bulbs going on. It's very fun because people are like, oh, <laughs> as they realize that, oh, so that, those tensions are supposed to be there. Um, and, and the stakeholder one is particularly interesting because people usually aren't thinking about that, that, oh, you know, I'm thinking about how hard it is to be beholden to our customers. I didn't even think about how stressful it is when you're beholden to the board and the finance committee and you've got to defend your case there. So it's very, very valuable. So what happens is when you do that, people create, uh, they have a common language now to talk about some of those tensions. So they can say things like, we haven't even heard yet from this role. We haven't even heard how this is going to land with this stakeholder. So they're actually now inviting in dissent as opposed to uh, resisting it. Um, you can give language as the team leader then to say, okay, I need more of this perspective or less of this perspective. So you can call on people or you can ask people to sort of 
sit on their hands for a few minutes because their perspective's already been heard. Um, so there are all sorts of things that become part of the language when you sit down with your team and you go through this exercise. So on leannedavy.com slash the good fight, I actually um, will be providing all the templates and tools to do that exercise. So if, if your listeners are interested, they can just check that out and get the tools to do that exercise. So that's one example of where you need to normalize conflict by actually talking about it, being very specific, being behavioral about it, and uh, and giving people the language so that now they can approach conflict and, and work through to the other side. So that's one one example. I like this notion of, you know, it's almost like you're placing it outside in that I represent this stakeholder group in some way or for fashion. I have to be accountable to this stakeholder group. And I don't mean stakeholders up. I mean stakeholders in the broadest possible sense. Yeah. The customer, the potential customer, the regulators, the... Um, risk committee in the on the board, I mean, a host of them. And in my role as representing that stakeholder group, here's the concern. So it really is a massive depersonalization. It's like yeah. I'm supposed so to bring I'm this point of view. I'm pulling on my rope pretty hard one day, just understand yeah. that it's because I feel an obligation to that stakeholder yeah. to do that. Right? And, and an obligation is such a useful word on a team because once we start throwing that word around, people say, oh, so even if it's hard for you to, because to, I know you don't like conflict, but, but I can see that you feel that obligation to stand up for our suppliers because nobody else is thinking about our suppliers. Once you get that obligation word throwing around, people start to understand and be more empathetic to their teammates who have to put some tension on a discussion. Okay. Okay. Now, this raises two questions for me. So suppose we do that exercise and everything goes smoothly and it's lovely and wonderful. But yeah, the tendency is to say, yeah, we know you always represent the um, compliance point of view or the regulatory point of view and too much to shut up for a while. <laughs> like, So yes. we can kind of yes. take this and then personalize it again, can't you? Isn't that a risk? Yes, absolutely. And usually that's when people feel invalidated. So, you know, you keep beating on that compliance drum and you're not hearing me about the supplier perspective, right? So, uh, you know, compliance is awesome, but my suppliers are telling me that, you know, we're paying our invoices way too slow. They don't want to work with us, right? So our paperwork is their headaches. Um, so we, we often, it gets unproductive again when, we, when we're only pulling our own rope and we're making the people around the table feel invalidated. So that's why validating one another becomes one of the most important techniques on the team. So let's talk about that one because it's a good second yeah. piece of the puzzle. So um, what you want to do when someone says something you completely disagree with what you want to do is say, that's malarkey. <laughs> Here's why that's right. not true. Um, you want to invalidate them. And actually, one of the ways we invalidate people is not by disagreeing with them. It's actually by withdrawing our body language and our eye contact. And even it's a very insidious way that we, uh, we invalidate other people. But I don't like what you're saying, so I'm just not even going to look at you. I'm going to look at the people who are smiling at me and who are agreeing with me. It's very, very insidious. So we want to become very aware. And instead of invalidating people, either with our words or our bodies, we want to validate them. 
So I hear you. For you, this is a huge concern because it's causing pain for our suppliers. And we don't have to agree with the person, right? It's really, really important to remember you don't have to agree with the person. You need to make them feel heard. You need to make them uh, feel like, okay, this person's actually going to engage in this conversation with me. So you start by validating them, either by um, repeating what they've said, by um, thanking them for it. You know what? I hadn't been thinking about the suppliers. Thank you for saying that. Um, those sorts of things validate them without necessarily agreeing. And then the second thing you want to do is ask a big open-ended question to show, I'm curious, I want to know more, I want to lean into your perspective before, uh, Stephen Covey used to talk about it as seek to understand before striving to be understood. So mm-hmm. if you validate them, say, okay, I hadn't been thinking about this from the stakeholder perspective, tell me a little bit more about what would be a more normal billing timeline for your suppliers? What are they telling you? And when you ask that question, you say, I I actually want to hear, I want to understand, I want to know. And what happens is once we do that, once we validate and we question and we show we're curious, um, we switch from being in an adversarial mode that it's suppliers versus compliance to being in an ally mode. Like this is our business and we got to make sure that we, you know, keep our suppliers happy and we keep compliance happy. Um, so then you can say, we have this awesome thing as humans, we like reciprocity. So if you've gone first and you've validated them and asked them questions and listened, then when you say, okay, let me, let me share how I'm experiencing this from the compliance perspective, the person will be much, 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 much more likely to want to hear you out, um, to ask some questions, to be empathetic. So uh, that's where you go second. So if we set it up as a team leader, set up all these tensions in the first place in a healthy way, then when it gets unhealthy, we actually want to spend more time. And it may not, you may be the team leader, not either the, the supplier person or the compliance person, but you can do the same thing. You can call it out. Okay, so... Thank you so much, you know, um, thank you so much, Juan. You've, you know, given us the compliance perspective very effectively, uh, and yet I want to hear the supplier perspective. Can you tell us? So you can actually do it and model it for them, but that process of shifting when it's getting unhealthy, when it's becoming unproductive, shift to this process of first validate, second question, and then third, you can uh, pivot and, and add your perspective. That's how you keep the, the conflict healthy in that, uh, in that tension situation. So just to repeat, that was a lot that you said in that. But this notion that I start by um, avoiding my usual behavior, which is saying, you always say that, you idiot, you never understand, <laughs> or some version of that, or thinking it yeah. even so that it shows in my body yeah. language. And instead, acknowledge something about what the person has said. So thank you for reminding about this, but not cynically. Or, you know, if I have understood correctly, here's what I've heard from you. So that repetition thing. And then follow with an open-ended question that shows curiosity. I always use the word gentle curiosity, not why would you be thinking that? <laughs> it doesn't help That's very much. Spanish Inquisition, yes, yes. Yeah, right. And then we expect that we can shift, after we've done that appropriately, that we can shift and the other person will reciprocate. So you can say, now let me tell you about my perspective. And if it isn't happening naturally, the leader can model that by just pivoting from one to the next in a very clean, easy, non-personal way. 
Okay, so Leanne, that sounds all lovely. That's fantastic. What if we've gotten to the point where it has become personal? Where fundamentally, I don't like you or really quite trust you or most importantly, I don't trust your motives. Yeah. So what's really interesting, and here's one where it gets very interesting in my work because this is where sometimes people need a little bit of tough love because we tend to get in that situation where we mistrust somebody on our team and we wait for them to change. And turns out that trust is not something inherent in them. It's something inherent in us. And mm-hmm. so they could behave completely differently and that won't make us trust them. Um, so if, if you don't believe me, then do the little thought experiment for yourself. Think of somebody who you just trust implicitly, and they may behave in a way that's not very trustworthy. They, you know, uh, go to some party that they didn't tell you about or something, and you may still choose to trust them. And you come up with a, a, an excuse. Well, you know, she didn't want to hurt my feelings, so it was actually kind of her to go to the party without telling me. Whereas there can be someone who you mistrust, and they could behave perfectly fine week after week after week, and you're still like, mm, I know, but someday she's, she's going to stab me in the back. So trust is actually inherent in us. So the, the only thing that actually is going to work to change that situation is you deciding, I'm going to trust the person. And if you don't yet trust the person, the trust hack is to behave as if you do. So if you think, I don't trust that person to represent me in a meeting, <laughs> I'm going so I can say my piece then actually just do the opposite. Behave as if you do trust the person. So you say, um, okay, I'm trusting you to represent me in the meeting. Here are the three things that I would love for you to say. And what happens is when we trust somebody else, it tends to be reflected. We have this awesome process in our brains called mirror neurons where we, where we pick up the emotional state of others. So by you offering trust, um, they will also begin to trust you more. So it's very tough love. It's a very hard message to swallow. But trust is inside you. And so if there's somebody on the team who's hurt you, I guess the other piece of the puzzle is give them that feedback, right? So you can say to them, um, you know, I need to share with you that, uh, you know, I was thinking about this meeting next week and my tendency was to go myself um, because I wasn't confident that you would share my points. Um, and I would love to talk with you about how we got to this point and how we can get to a different point. And I'd love to know how you're feeling. Um, and, and so there is this opportunity to, um, to actually open up the conversation and, and have the feedback. I just want your listeners to realize that in the end, it's going to come down to whether you choose to trust somebody else yeah, or not. Yeah, because yeah. it's not a light switch yeah. somebody else can flick. <laughs> Yeah, I always say, and I believe, I think others agree with me on this one, that trust is something that's given. It's not something that's earned or granted or deserved or any of that. If you don't trust someone else, they will by default not trust you. So it is granted. So you have to grant the first. Now, maybe I might not be get so far as to say I'm going to trust you in this meeting, but I might trust you for a tiny, small thing and see how it goes. Exactly. So try that. I agree. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Um, it is fascinating to me how many times conflict becomes personal. And I know everyone says, you know, don't make it personal and take the personal out of it. And uh, honestly, bah humbug, mature, oh, reasonable yeah. adults cannot not make it personal. because I think because there's so much emotion involved. It matters so much. 
So I'll tell you where it's not personal. It's not personal in organizations that have engagement in the toilet. There it's not personal because I don't care. Like, I'm not emotionally invested in my work. I'm just here. I'm showing up for the paycheck. That's where it's not personal. Anywhere that's a high-performing organization full of great people who care about what they do, of course it's personal. It better be personal. I'm worried about a place where it's not personal. And, And actually, and I think that's a lot because people are afraid of seeing emotions at work. And I just tell people, emotions are very useful. They're just like pain. So pain is not very fun, and nor is seeing emotions in the workplace, but it's extremely diagnostic because if I see it, then I know there's damage being done underneath. So if I see emotions in the workplace, if I see you know negative emotions in the workplace, then it alerts me, okay, there's damage being done. So the emotions aren't valuable in and of themselves, and they're not the injury in and of themselves. What we have to get to is, something this person values, something that matters to them is being injured. And and I'm going to use that emotion to say, hey, I need to pay attention. So I have a bum shoulder right now, a bad rotator cuff. And when I give speeches, I tend to wave my arms around and I, I do damage. And that pain that strikes through my shoulder in the middle of the speech says, Leanne, put your arm down. Don't do that. There's, there's injury happening. So if you see emotion on your team, just think of it like pain right? Okay, this is useful. What am I missing? What, what injury is being done here that I need to pay some more attention to? Don't be afraid of it because the only time you're not going to see emotion at work uh, is when you've got people who just don't care. Right. And we're talking particularly about negative emotions, that which are the hardest yes. ones to deal with. Everybody loves the positive stuff. That's great. All right, Leanne, I've gotten so engaged in the conversation that I'm almost about to miss that we are um, out, almost out of time. So you have one minute. One piece of advice to how to make this ability to have a good fight an ongoing habit. One minute. Yeah. So it's just like credit card debt. We talked about that debt metaphor. So cut up the card and I want you to pay with cash now. I want you to pay with cash, which is just when something comes up, um, deal with it right away in the moment while it's small, while it's not a big deal, um, proactively before it's become an issue and you'll find that the more willing you are to have conflict, the less you need to have because you deal with the stuff when it's small. It doesn't even really feel like conflict. And we don't have that debt compounding on us where these things um, devolve into mistrust and, and really get us in trouble. So the more willing you are to have conflict, the less conflict you will need to have. What a great way to end that. And the notion that I deal with it in the moment right then, not wait, not let it go away, not say, no, this isn't a big deal. I learned to deal with it. And as a leader in particular, when I'm dealing with it in the moment, I'm modeling to everybody around me that we're going to take this seriously. We're going to pay attention to it. Absolutely. Leanne, there's so much more we could say without any doubt. Again, my guest today is Leanne Davey. The book that we have been talking about is The Good Fight. Use productive conflict to get your team and your organization back on track. And I will also tell you that if you visit Leanne's website, so com slash goodfight, there are all sorts of tools and templates that are available for you there that can help you do this. I think this may be one of the single most important skills for leaders to learn because conflict is not going away. As we try to do more and more globally at faster and faster pace with less and less money, there's going to be more conflict. And learning to build an organization as a leader 
that can talk about this stuff and talk about it constructively has to be a win-win scenario for everyone. So, Leanne, thank you for being a guest. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, Wanda. Okay. And everyone, join us next week for another episode on getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Oh,